This is the word of the Lord uh, from 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 1. You can read on page 6 of the bulletin, or if you have a Bible, you can open that. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I started working uh, when I was 14 years old. I don't know how they legally made that happen, but it happened. I worked at a pharmacy, a local pharmacy near my parents' house. And I had a bunch of part-time jobs uh, growing up in between the years I was a student. And during those times, I had many interviews. And there was always this question during an interview that I had no idea how to answer. And that question was, what are your weaknesses? What are your weaknesses? Did you ever get that question in an interview? I always felt like it was a trick question. Like, are you really asking me my weaknesses that I tell you so I don't get this job? Is that where we're going? In fact, I remember a high school counselor kind of teaching us about interviews and how to, how to interview and saying, you know, you really want to present your best self at an interview. You kind of want to minimize your weaknesses. All that to say, that question of weaknesses in an interview, it always confused me. But on the other hand, I never felt fully right promoting myself in an interview. Telling the employer all these great things about myself that may or may not be true. You know, Americans, even Pittsburghers, we're raised in a society that values strength, <clears throat> values toughness, and grit. You know, we're called the Steel City, for a reason. I was raised that way, it's in my blood, and for followers of Jesus, according to Paul, it's a problem. It's a problem. I'd argue that not just Pittsburghers, but all humans 
struggle with this temptation to boast in our strengths. To put our strengths forward and to hide our weaknesses. The Apostle Paul says, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. He says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul had a completely different view of weakness. He viewed weakness as just one more way that God was going to reveal his power and his strength. Paul viewed weakness through the lens of providence, which is our catechism question. Weakness was just one more way for God to provide for his children, and that feels counterintuitive. It goes against our culture. It goes against what feels normal. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Here's three points. I want to look at humble boasting. These are all oxymoronic. The saving thorn and powerful weakness. Let's look at humble boasting. Let's begin with a bit of a background. Just a quick reminder of uh, 2 Corinthians. I want you to remember our, our, our last sermon uh, from 2 Corinthians. Um, we remember that chapters 10 to 13 is particularly to a rebellious minority in the church of Corinth. Um, there is this sect of what they called super apostles. They call themselves this. Uh, these false teachers in the church of Corinth that slithered out of the sewer. In chapters 10 and 11, Paul vehemently attacks these super apostles. In chapters 11, chapter 11, 5, Paul says this. He says, Indeed, I consider that I am not at least inferior to these super apostles. And then verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So I don't have time to read chapters uh, 10 and 11 to you, but if if you were to read them, you would find that Paul spills a significant amount of ink about boasting. Paul uses this literary tool called satire, and uh, when he speaks in this chapter of the way, he speaks in a way that the super apostles might sound in chapters 10 to 13. So for example, uh, chapter 11, verse 21, Paul says, But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Do you hear it? And then chapter 11, verse 30, Paul leaves the satire behind and he says, If I must boast, I will boast of my weaknesses. And that's why we get this strange language in the beginning of our text this evening. When Paul says, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on the visions and revelations of the Lord. So there's your background. Paul is making a, a blow to these super apostles, these fake apostles. He's essentially saying, hey, super apostles, you think you're something because of your fake stories, your fake righteousness, you pretend holiness. He says, I've had revelations. I've had visions. Verse 4, he says, I've heard things that cannot be told. Verse 4, which man may not utter. I've seen paradise. I've been raised up into the air. Amazing things have happened to me, super apostles, and they mean absolutely nothing. 
Nothing. What I will boast in, the only thing I will boast in, are my weaknesses. And that is, by the way, how you distinguish a false apostle. Do they boast in Christ or in their strength? These super apostles boasted in their strength. So how do I know that this man, because he says there was a man that Paul speaks of got, who got caught up in the third heaven, which is just up into the sky. Um, how do I know this is Paul, the apostle Paul? And the answer is pretty simple. Just two verses later, verse 7, he says, Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations after he just described this great revelation man. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, he saw some things. He saw some things. He experienced some things. He had some revelations that you and I have not had. He had visions. I want you to remember Acts, uh, the book of Acts, the Damascus Road. I mean, he encountered Jesus and he says it's all nothing. It's all nothing. Is it really nothing? Really, Paul? Is it nothing? How could it be nothing if you or I saw heaven? If we saw paradise, I think you or I would probably go and write a book about it. I think we'd go on a speaking circuit. I think you'd be shouting it from the rooftops. I think you'd be saying, I just went up into heaven and came back down. But Paul says, nothing? Why? A couple of reasons. So first Paul answers this directly. He says, verse 6, that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Do you see that? Paul is making less of himself in order to make more of Christ. He is saying that there's only one man's opinion that should really matter to you. So much that every other opinion is like an ant compared to a mountain. And that opinion, that word, is Jesus' word to you. Paul doesn't want to get, Jesus doesn't want anyone to get caught up in the fact that he saw Jesus, that he had visions, that he had revelations, that God spoke to him. So I don't know about you, but I've never had an audible face-to-face conversation with the living God. But Paul did. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 23. He saw some things. But instead, Paul magnifies God's word to you. Why? So I heard a preacher explain it this way. He said, imagine you had a vision of God, a revelation. Imagine you had a sign from heaven, that thing you've been praying for, to see. And it's here today, and it's gone in five minutes. You have it, and it's gone. Would it change your life? Sure. It might, for a time. But then, do you know what happens to humans as years go by, and the clock ticks? Life gets in the way. Memories fade. Doubt creeps in. Did it really happen? Is it that glorious? So what might be a better option than just a five-minute sign here and gone. What if God was speaking to you all the time? What if there was constant communication? 
That would certainly be best. We can think back to the garden where God dwelt with man. But because of their sin, what's another second best option? Well, what if he wrote down his word for you? What if he gave his word to you forever? What if scripture, the Bible, is not the worst option that we have, but it's the best option that we could have? God's word remaining with us forever. So that's the first reason. But the second reason Paul says that all these revelations are nothing is because he says the only thing worth boasting in is his weakness. Verse 9, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the language uh, in the Greek there is literally, literally that the power of Christ may pitch its tent upon me. Or may tabernacle with me. It's Old Testament language. That he may dwell with me. The only person Paul wants to please is Jesus. So I'll, um, I'll give you a story. Uh, my two and a half year old son, uh, when he hears uh, clapping, he cries. And um, some of you may have witnessed this a week ago at the pastor's appreciation when everyone clapped and Elisha, my son, burst into tears. And I don't know why he does it. Uh, I think he's two and a half, so he gets overwhelmed. But when I clap for my son, his eyes light up, he has a big smile on his face. And uh, we have this little kid slide at home. It's like this tall. And I'll say to Elisha, I'll say, Elisha, go down the slide and Papa will clap for you. And he, as soon as I say, he runs up the slide, slides down, and I clap, yay, Elisha. He smiles and he says, again, again. And we just do this. <laughs> over and over, I clap for him. I say, yay, Elisha. Brothers and sisters, we think about providence. God providing for you. He does not just provide things for you. He provides a security of identity. A father cheering on his son. He provides an affirmation that should only be found in the Lord. And not in any other man. Not a pastor. Not a family member. Not a celebrity your PCA, not Tim Keller. And Paul says, not even an apostle of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Do you believe that the Lord delights over you? Do you believe that when you run to him, he wants to make you feel secure? Do you let his word wash over you, soaking in his love for you. Paul goes out of his way to push us away from himself and towards Christ. Where in your life do you run to other things rather than the affirming word of God? To God's affirmation. Where do you run elsewhere for acceptance, for security, or truth, or love, or identity? Now what's amazing is that Paul is aware of this temptation of his own heart. I want you to imagine being Paul for a second. Just You're the apostle Paul. You are called by God to give the gospel to the Gentiles, to the whole world. 
It's quite a responsibility. It would be easy to become conceited. I mean, there's me, there's John, Matt, and then there's Tim Keller, and then there's the Apostle Paul, like, way up there. And Jesus infinitely high. It would be easy to become conceited if you were Paul. And so, this brings us to our next point, Paul's saving thorn. Verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So a few points on this thorn. There are generally three uh, views that are accepted for what this thorn is. The first is that the thorn is literally an ailment of his flesh, a physical handicap, something wrong with Paul, and the theologian uh, Charles Hodge took this view and certainly, uh, we know that physical ailments can be humble to us. The second view is taken by Calvin. John Calvin reminds us that the flesh, the way Paul uses the word, is often synonymous with the sinful nature. Um, so the thorn in the flesh could literally be um, Paul struggling with a weakness of faith or a doubt or a particular sin or a temptation. And then the third view is that this thorn could be literally a demonic spirit. And we get that in the language of the messenger of Satan in the text there. Um, I particularly lean for the, towards the first and the second view, either a physical ailment or a temptation. But frankly, I don't think it matters for the point that Paul is making in this text. I think you could take any of the views. I want to point something out to you I haven't seen before in reading this text, thinking about providence in verse 8, Paul pleads three times for the thorn to leave. And God answers verse 9, no, it's staying. And then here's what I noticed this time around. God is the one providing that thorn, even using a messenger of Satan. God is using evil, a messenger of Satan, for the good purpose of keeping Paul from conceit, from pride. You notice that? So let me say it again. God is using evil for his good purposes. As we consider providence, that is one of the ways that God provides. Now our confession, our Westminster Standards, go out of the way, and I agree wholeheartedly with this, to say that although God uses evil for good purposes. He is by no means the author of sin, nor does he cause us to sin. So just because God is redeeming what is evil by using evil against itself does not mean that God is causing us to sin. So I don't want us to confuse things. But what is clear is that God can even use, one, the evil around us, two, the brokenness of the world, like sickness or sin or handicaps, and three, even our own temptations, even our own sin, to work humility and grace and dependence in a movement away from conceit in us. So I want to read the confession to you. We've been reading the Shorter Catechism. This is the standards reflecting on that. It says this. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes lead for a season his own children to manifold temptations, the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness in their hearts, 
that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy means. So even Paul, the great apostle Paul, was tempted towards pride, towards being conceited. Conceited uh, in the Greek literally means to be lifted up, to lord it over. Now, when I first read this, it actually made me feel a little bit better about myself. You know, Paul is boasting in his weakness here. This thorn in the flesh is an example for us. But to be honest, um, I am thankful that even the Apostle Paul is tempted towards conceit. Because I know in my own heart I can struggle with that. But also, if Paul is tempted towards conceit, how much more careful do I need to be? Second, let me ask you this. Do you believe that you can be tempted towards conceit? Do you believe that you are conceited? Sometimes it's hard to be a preacher. I'll just say that to the congregation. Particularly as we think about providence, let me ask you, from where, from who, from whom, do you get your providence? Is it you that provides, ultimately, or is it God? So part of the thorn in the flesh is that Paul is forcing us to look to God for the strength to continue while wounded. God must be the strength that Paul needs or Paul will not be effective in ministry. So let me ask you again, or for the first time rather, what are your thorns? What are your thorns? What have you pleaded for God to take away? He has answered either no or not yet. So I've shared this before, but I would be uh, remiss to not share it with you again. For those of you tonight who struggle with a chronic illness, uh, who've been diagnosed with a chronic disease, but I was diagnosed in 2011 with a chronic illness, and I'll share with you that when I was first diagnosed, I have a doctor say to me, Joseph, you will take medicine the rest of your life, and it will continue to get worse until it either kills you or you will lose your colon. That was a tremendous weakness for me. And it continues to be. I don't like to appear weak before you. But it's important that you see leaders in the church admitting that we too are weak. At City Reformed Presbyterian Church, when we think about who our strong leader is, it is not our pastors. It is not our ruling elders or our deacons or our women's council members. We have one strong leader, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must make much of Jesus. Health has been an area of weakness for me, but I have had other areas of weakness and I'm glad to share them with you if you'd like to grab coffee together. But let me ask, how about you? Where are you weak? Where do you feel weak as a Christian? Do you doubt? Is it faith? 
Are you introverted? Maybe coming to church and having to talk to people is scary for you. Do you have a handicap or a chronic illness? Do you feel less successful than other people or maybe less beautiful? Do you feel less intelligent? Or, or maybe there have been actual evil people after you to hurt you. Or maybe even evil itself. What if those thorns are no accident? What if those thorns are the very means that God uses to create humility in us, to give us empathy in order to minister and to love other people? To teach us that our every meal, our every breath must come from the living God. Paul says, I boast in my weaknesses. So look, it's one thing to bear weakness, right? It's one thing to begrudge your weakness. It is another thing to boast in a weakness. So I gave a lot of time in prayer this week to the ways I need to do better about boasting in my own weaknesses. To be vulnerable with you, I don't enjoy appearing weak. Jesus says that is the very thing I'm going to use to make you strong. So it's counterintuitive, it feels backwards, it's against everything we're taught in society, everything we're taught growing up, everything that feels safe. But it is the nature of the gospel. So how can weakness produce strength? I want to look at that now, this is my third point. Verse 8, Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I was reading Charles Hodge on this, this great Reformed Presbyterian pastor and theologian and exegete, and I came to these words where he talked about, my grace is sufficient for you. And Hodge wrote this. He said, the connection is in favor of the common meaning of the term, my love is enough for me. These are the words of Christ. He says to those who seek deliverance from pain and sorrow, it is enough that I love you. And when I read that, studying for this, my eyes filled with tears because I was reminded that in my own trials, my own temptations, in my own suffering, in the midst of struggles, that I have the love of Christ and that is everything that I need. So I just told you some hard things. I told you that God uses uh, the thorns of the flesh to humble you, but what I did not tell you is that you have everything you need to keep going. You have everything you need to bear with this thorn, and the Lord says to you, my grace is sufficient. Now, obviously, we don't always believe this, or we forget it, but even if you don't believe or you forget it, does not mean make it less true. God still loves you, he is still present with you. He does not leave you. He does not forsake you. And that is comfort to a weary soul plagued by a thorn. Do you believe that his love, his grace is enough? Where in your life are you tempted to think that you need more than the love of Christ? Now someone might argue against Paul. They might say here, well Paul, you cannot eat love. Love doesn't put bread on the table. Love doesn't earn a paycheck. Love doesn't pay the bills. 
Here's how I think Paul would argue that point. I think he would say to that person, he would say, you are absolutely right. Paul is not arguing here for uh, you to not work or to not go and pay your bills or work hard or do things that require strength. So what is his point? He is making an argument for the source. He's pushing you to see what is motivating your work. Is it the love of God? Or duty? The love of God? Or greed? The love of God? Or prestige? The love of God? Or conceit? So please don't stop working. And start saying, well... The pastor said, I need to be weak, so therefore I don't have to do anything difficult. I am not saying that, and the text is not saying it. The text is saying that every person ever created, Paul included, has weaknesses. We don't need to go look for them. They're there. But even the weakness you hate about yourself, God can use for great power. Let me say it again. Even those things you hate about yourself, the Lord can use for great power. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. So what if the greatest strength the Lord has given to you for ministry is your greatest weakness? That the very thing that if people saw it, you would be ashamed. You would be embarrassed. What if the thing that God has planned for effective ministry is your greatest weakness. You know, I see this all the time, actually. For example, is it necessary to have struggled with sexual sin in order to help a brother who is struggling with sexual sin? Is it necessary? Absolutely not. It would be far better for you to never have sinned at all. But, have I seen God powerfully work in the life of one addict to help another addict. Absolutely I have. You have no idea of the myriad of ways that God will use you in your weaknesses. If you hide your weaknesses, then certainly you are quenching the Spirit and God will not use you. Now I want us to be careful. I want you to notice that Paul doesn't publicly tell the Corinthians what this thorn is. It's not an accident. Still today, we don't know for certain what this thorn is. And so we want to speak appropriately about our weaknesses. But we ought to speak of them. Appropriately, responsibly, but we ought to speak of them. I want you to think about it this way. The greatest sign that the Apostle Paul had of being an Apostle, of any Apostle, was not... Although these were signs, their power to heal or receive visions, the greatest sign that he had is that he boasted in his weakness. Where in your life do you love to appear strong? Where in your life are you hiding weaknesses, addictions, struggles, failings, vices, illnesses? Christians, we are not great at this. I was thinking back to, is there a church where I can see clearly all of us just being open and honest about our weaknesses? I couldn't think of one. 
I'm not very good at it. There's a quote, and I'll do the best I can to recite it. If someone remembers where this quote comes from, I'm going to butcher it. Please come and tell me afterwards. It goes something like this. Where women cry, men hide their tears. Men keep tears inside, and those tears turn into heart disease and tumors and cancer, and that's why women have lived men. Men are particularly bad at showing weakness. Um, this is mainly because men are raised in a culture which tells you from the time you're a little boy to never show weakness. So I'm bad at this. Marriage has helped me. Some, having a wife that can come and say to me, Joseph, you have worked enough. You are tired. You do need to rest. It's helpful. Um, but the Apostle Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Now, the language is actually stronger uh, in the Greek, Calvin, Hodge, they all translate this to take pleasure. I'm going to actually take pleasure in my weaknesses. And I think, my guess, is the ESV changed this because it sounds at that point like masochism. Right? I'm going to take pleasure in pain. But it's not masochism. It's simply viewing and understanding that what you see as weakness is actually strength. It's understanding alongside Paul that if you're undergoing hardships or persecutions or calamities or insults or weaknesses, then you are strong because you are in Christ. Do you know what this means? It means it frees you from fear. All of a sudden, imagine your greatest fear. All of a sudden, your greatest fear becomes the power of God is still in you. It doesn't mean that it's not hard. It doesn't mean that it's not difficult, that there's not real persecution. It doesn't mean that it's not to be wept over or mourned or grieved. But it means deep down you can know for certain that the Lord Jesus is working for your good. I'll just end by reminding you of the king of weakness, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our perfect example. Do you remember what the onlookers said as Jesus uh, was being crucified and as he hung on the cross? So Matthew 27, verse 40, they said, if you're the Son of God, save yourself. Save yourself. And on the outside, all people saw as Jesus hung on the cross was weakness. But behind the scenes, what was happening? Behind the scenes, what they perceived as weakness was actually the weight of sin, the guilt of man, the wrath of God poured on Christ and taken off of you and me. Jesus was saving the world before their eyes and all they saw was weakness. Built into the foundation of Christian faith is this idea that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Now here's the question for you. Are you too proud? Are you too proud to allow Jesus to work in those weaknesses? To be vulnerable? To admit help? To admit you need saving? If so, you cannot be a Christian. But for those who lay their weaknesses at the foot of the cross... God promises to dwell with those people 
to rest upon them, to tabernacle with them. Those people he saves. He says that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I know many of you in this room have given your weaknesses to Christ and who are willing to share those weaknesses with others. If you long for Christ to dwell with you and you have not done this, give yourself to him and he will give himself to you. Let's pray.